Well, good morning. It is great to be back in Rock Hill to be able to worship with you guys this morning. Um, as most of you know, a group of us has been in Indianapolis for the last week on a mission trip. And uh, it's just been an, uh, an incredible week. We just got back around dinner time last night. And uh, let me just start by saying thank you for your prayers and for your support. Uh, we had a fantastic week up there, and we, uh, we, we were able to accomplish everything um, that we had set out to accomplish. And we know that that's because you guys were praying for us. Um, we did landscaping, light construction, painting, deep cleaning, community outreach. We threw a block party, and uh, we did it all for the glory of God. And we were just grateful to be able to represent Northside um, in Indianapolis this last week. And it was, uh, it was fantastic. So I know I speak for everybody uh, who was on the trip when I say thank you. So we really appreciate that. Well, hasn't this been a, a great start uh, to our worship service this morning? Um, a few months ago, when we were planning our summer schedule, um, and I learned that I was speaking this week, I, I came to Pastor Scott, and, uh, and I asked him um, if it'd be okay if we just kind of made this into a youth Sunday, and just to see if it'd be possible, if maybe we could just get our, our youth to lead. And, uh, and thankfully, he agreed. I wanted our students to have the opportunity to, to serve you in every capacity, whether they held the doors, uh, whether they handed you a bulletin, um, whether they led in song. Uh, whether they take up the offering later, whether they pray. We just wanted to give our students an opportunity uh, to, to serve our church. And uh, so thank you, Scott, for letting us do that. Thank you, church, uh, for giving us this opportunity. I know uh, that our student ministry is very grateful. Well, I know that we have some visitors here with us this morning, so let me just quickly introduce myself. Uh, my name is Reed Hopkins, and I'm the Minister of Education and Students here. Um, I'm not the normal teaching pastor, uh, but I'm definitely grateful for every opportunity that I have to stand before you and preach God's word. Um, it is a joy to be uh, one of the pastors at this great church, and I consider it an honor to stand on the stage today. Uh, well, we are currently in the middle of a summer-long sermon series on our favorite Bible stories. So if the story that we look at today was your favorite, um, then I, I just want to say I hope to make you proud this morning by doing two things. One, I want to stay faithful to the text, and number two, I want to keep the focus where it belongs, and that's on Jesus Christ. And so that's the direction that we're going. And so this morning, we've got quite a bit of Scripture to look at. So if you have your Bible with you, let me get you just to go ahead and turn over to the Gospel of John. Today, we're going to be looking at John chapter 4, and specifically looking at the story of the woman at the well. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, let me just encourage you to use the Pew Bible that's in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible at all, let me encourage you just to take that home with you today. Just consider that to be a gift from our church. Uh, We want to make sure that everybody who worships with us on a Sunday... Uh, has a copy of God's Word at their house. Well, while you're turning in your Bibles to the Gospel of, of, of John, let me give you just some quick information about this book. I always find information like this helpful for, for me personally as I'm trying to understand what's taking place in the text. And uh, so I want to try to share that with you as well. Uh, the Gospel of John was written uh, in the mid to late 80s. Uh, now, some of the first books of the New Testament were written um, in the mid-40s, books like Galatians, for example. Uh, and then the last book of the New Testament, which is the book of Revelation, was written in the early 90s. So it's towards the end of the writing of the New Testament. Uh, so it definitely wasn't the first book written, but it also wasn't the last. Uh, and I tell you all of this just to let you know that this book was written while there were still eyewitnesses alive to verify everything that was written. There was nothing written down here uh, that somebody didn't have the ability to step forward and say... Hey, that didn't happen. That's not true. I was there. There were eyewitnesses who were still alive who could, who could verify everything that was written. Now, there are several Johns mentioned in the Bible, but this particular book is believed to have been written by the Apostle John. Now, there's internal and external evidence that points to this. Um, but why does this matter? Why, do, why does anybody care who wrote it, right? Well, let me, let me tell you why this matters. Uh, the reason why this is important is because it was written by someone who was extremely close to Christ. 
It was not written just by some random guy with a pen and paper. It was written by somebody who is a part of, John, or a part of Christ's inner core. So if there was anyone who could speak with authority about Jesus Christ, it was someone like John. So we can not only trust what he said because it was written while there were still eyewitnesses, but we can trust what he said because he was part of the inner core. It's kind of like when we want to hear more about Moses when he parted the Red Sea, we turn to somebody like Pastor Larry who was there and can give us an eyewitness testimony. You didn't think you were going to get off that easy, did you? <laughs> the Gospel of John is believed by many people to be the most theologically complex of the four Gospels. As you study the Gospel of John, uh, you'll see that he's big on two main ideas. First is this idea of believing, and uh, second is this idea of faith. And uh, this morning, we actually have the privilege of kind of seeing both of these ideas clearly in our text. Uh, but before we jump in our text, uh, let, me, let me just open us up in a word of prayer as we jump into God's Word. Father, we thank you for uh, giving us an opportunity to gather this morning to, uh, to study your word. And uh, Lord, we pray that what we do um, over the next little bit of our time and everything that we do this entire morning uh, will be done for your glory and not for our own. So Father, we just pray that, um, that you will be honored through the proclamation of your word. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, our text today is John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. If you have a different translation, that's okay. Uh, but I'll be in the NIV, so if you want to pull that up on your Bible app, on your iPhone, uh, that'll be the one that I'm using. All right, verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, he said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as it also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir... The woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. 
for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Inside of your bulletin, you have an outline for today's message. Uh, we have some fill-in-the-blanks for you that will help you uh, follow along with, uh, with what we've discussed today. And through our time this morning, we are going to see five different truths about Jesus Christ. And your first point is this, and we'll have these on the screen for you. Jesus is intentional with his work. First point is Jesus is intentional with his work. Let's look back at verses 1 through 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now in case you have forgotten some of the details of your world geography class uh, when you were in school, I came prepared this morning with a couple of maps to try to help us understand uh, what is uh, going on in this story. So let me see if I can explain some of this stuff. This is a map that we're going to put up on the screen right here of Israel uh, during biblical times. And you'll actually see a red line. I know it's really hard to see, but there's a red line that shows Jesus' path during, or as, as described in the Gospel of John. And unless you're Superman, you probably do not have eyesight great enough to see all of this. So let me see if I can just point out a couple of things uh, that we're all looking at. This, this region down here uh, that I'm pointing to in this kind of bluish, turquoise turquoise-ish area is Judea. Uh, Right here in the purple is Samaria, and up at the very top in the pink is Galilee. So we see that Jesus is starting off down here in the blue. He's heading up to the pink, and he's decided that he's going to cut right through this purple area called Samaria. So at the beginning of this passage, Jesus is down at the bottom. He's down there in Judea. He decides that it's time to leave. And verses 1 and 2 explain that the Pharisees are hearing more and more about Jesus' ministry. And they're hearing about all these people who are coming to faith in Christ uh, and being baptized. Now, in case you're new to church and don't know much about the Pharisees, the Pharisees are basically just these religious elite of the day. Uh, They had a lot of political power. And uh, most people kind of saw them as the religious experts of their time. So these Pharisees are now becoming aware of Jesus' ministry. And for reasons that are really not clearly explained in the text, Jesus just decides that it's better to move on than to engage with them. So he, d- he doesn't pick a fight with them. He doesn't sit there and argue with them. He just decides, I'm moving on. I'm heading on over to Galilee. Now, look at verse 4 with me again. Verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Now, there's two different ways of reading this verse. The first way would be, He had to go through Samaria because that's the only way to get to Galilee. That's one option. Or the second option is he had to go through Samaria because there was something that he needed to do while he was on the way. Now look again at this map. Is it possible that Jesus could have made his way to Galilee without going through Samaria? Absolutely. He could have kind of gone through this little brown area over here. He could have gone by way of Mediterranean Sea. He didn't have to go through Samaria. If he was absolutely determined to avoid the Samaritans, he could have done so. So, if that's not the option, then clearly it has to be the other one, which is that he had something to do on the way. And like we just said in our first point, Jesus is intentional with his work. Let's keep reading, verses 5 through 9. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, 
Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Your second point is this. Jesus is relational with his ministry. Jesus is relational with his ministry. I'm going to give you guys some inside information on on being a pastor. In ministry, it can be very easy to sit behind a desk and never really come in contact with people. Um, It is very easy to get caught up in all the administrative details that take place kind of behind the scenes that a lot of people just really aren't aware of, the communication, the planning, a lot of the details, the organization. And it's very easy to get caught up so much in that uh, that you really never go out and minister to people. Uh, And the same is true in your life, if we're honest. You know it's easy to wake up, go to work, do your job, clock out, and come home. However, it takes effort to build meaningful relationships with people. It takes effort to get to the point where you've gained the trust of someone enough to actually shift the conversation towards the gospel. So one of the things that we see in this passage is that Jesus was relational in his ministry. As we see in verse 5, Jesus arrives in this region of Samaria, stops in this city called Sychar, and we see that this city is close to this plot of ground uh, that uh, Jacob had given Joseph all the way back in Genesis chapter 33. And after traveling all the way from Judea, he's now tired and he's hungry. And so he sends his disciples into town to buy food. And Jesus decides that he's just going to hang out by this well and wait. Now remember, our first point was that Jesus is intentional with his work. And we're actually about to see that play out right here. Uh, it's about noon and Jesus is sitting by this well waiting for his disciples to return with the food. And then a Samaritan woman arrives. And without a doubt, we're going to see that this is a divine appointment. So the Samaritan woman arrives to get some water, and Jesus immediately strikes up this conversation with her. Uh, But look at how she responds. He asks her for a drink, and look at what she says in response. Kind of a very odd answer. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. All right, so what in the world is going on here? Okay, we read this, and sometimes we're like, I don't really know what that means, so we just kind of go on past it. Well, let me see if I could kind of shine some light on what's taking place in the culture uh, to try to help you understand. And for us to be able to do this, we actually have to rewind time all the way back to the Old Testament during the days of King Rehoboam. Uh, During this time, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. Uh, You had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Uh, And if you want to read more information about this, you can go to 1 Kings, especially in chapter 12. Uh, But when it was divided, the southern kingdom was known as Judah, and the northern kingdom was known as Israel. The southern kingdom was made up of of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and the northern kingdom of Israel was made up of, of the rest of the tribes. And as soon as the kingdom was divided, the people from the southern kingdom in Judah, they were called Jews, and the people in the northern kingdom of Israel were called Israelites. So that's kind of where they get their names from at that point. And this division created animosity between uh, these two groups. And during this time, Jerusalem was the capital of the southern region, the southern kingdom of Judah. And Samaria was the capital city of the northern region of Israel. Now, the, the king in the south was King Rehoboam. The king in the north was King Jeroboam. So kind of have that all in your mind. Uh, and to help you see this, I've got another map for you. Let me get out my laser pointer. All right, so down here is Judah. And up here is Israel, this green area. And it's almost impossible to see, but Jerusalem is about right there. Samaria is about right there. And so that's what you're looking at right there. Well, immediately after the division, King Jeroboam, who's the king in the north, 
uh, he actually changes the way that the Israelites worship. No longer did the Israelites who lived in the north travel to the south to bring their sacrifices um, or to participate in worship. Instead, Jeroboam set up these areas, and then he set up an area in the north in this region called Dan for them to worship, in a region in the southern part of Israel, and still in the green area, called Bethel. And one of the worst things he did, though, is he actually introduced idol worship into what they were doing. So eventually Israel fell to the Assyrians and they began to intermarry with them. And scripture actually uh, taught against that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. You don't have to turn there. Let me read this uh, to you. It says, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. And this is why the Jews hated the Samaritans. Throughout the New Testament, you'll see the Jews refer to them as dogs or half-breeds. Some of those words should kind of stand out. So as a result of the kingdom division, changing the place of worship, worshiping idols, and intermarrying with one of their enemies, now you know why that the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. And this continued on for hundreds of years, all the way up until the time of Christ. Now Jesus was aware of this history, but he still continued to pursue the soul of the Samaritan woman Anyway, because we see in our text that Jesus is relational with his ministry. Let's keep reading. This is uh, verses 10 through 14. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Your third point is Jesus is greater than everything. Jesus is greater than everything. All right, so immediately Jesus jumps right past this objection from the Samaritan woman, uh, this, this idea of Jews don't associate with Samaritans. He jumps right past that, and he starts talking to her about this idea of living water. Look at what he says in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So basically, Jesus tells her, if you do about two different things, you'd be asking me for living water. First, if you knew the gift of God. So what is this? What is this gift of God? Well, if we jump over to Ephesians chapter 2, which Paul wrote, uh, we'll see that it's actually the gift of salvation that is given by grace through faith. Check out what it says. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. Check it out. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a grace gift. And then the second thing he said, and if you knew who it is that asks you for a drink... In other words, Jesus is saying, if you only knew who you were talking to right now, if you knew who I am, you would be asking me for water, for living water. But clearly this didn't register with her. Uh, Look at how she responds. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Now, Jesus is obviously speaking to her in spiritual terms at this moment, and it's just not registering yet. It's not clicking. And, uh, and then she challenges him on uh, one of the statements that he made with her next line. And you can almost just hear the sarcasm in her voice. Check this out. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? 
And then look at how Jesus responds. This is verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, Jesus is saying, Yes, I'm greater than Jacob. His water satisfies your physical thirst. My water can satisfy your spiritual thirst. Whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Yes, I'm greater. Keep reading. Verses 15 uh, through 18. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And this is your fourth point. Jesus is all-knowing and still all-loving. Praise the Lord, right? Jesus is all-knowing and still all-loving. So to give you just a quick contextual update... Uh, Women at this point in history just didn't go and get water at noon. This is something that you did early in the day to prepare for all the work that was ahead of you. And second to that, women at this time did not travel alone. Um, They just, especially in this area that they were, uh, the scholars have, uh, have, have noted that this is not the safest area of town, so usually would, women would travel in groups just for safety reasons. Uh, so in this, uh, in this passage that we're looking at, we kind of have this strange situation. Not only do we have a woman who's getting water at a time that doesn't make sense, uh, but she's all by herself. And as we've seen in the text, there's a reason for this. Uh, this woman was living a life that even her fellow half-breed citizens didn't want to associate with. They didn't approve of. The, woman, uh, the other women of Samaria, Samaria, they didn't want anything to do with her. So you can, you can kind of just see in the text that the reason why she's by herself is to avoid the judgment from her peers and to just avoid the embarrassing, uh, embarrassing situation of other people who she knows that's living this lifestyle, of them calling her out on it and saying things. So basically what she's done is she's just removed herself from the community. And so verse 16, he said, um, Go, call your husband and come back. Now, let me ask you, why would he do that? That's an odd thing. Kind of, if you're just reading this passage and really trying to figure out what's going on, this really is kind of a strange question. And uh, there's a few options why he would ask this question. The first option um, is some people think that Jesus might be trying to protect his reputation right here and that maybe he just wanted a third person there for accountability purposes. At this point in history, a man and a woman, especially if they're total strangers, they would not be seen together alone having conversation like this. Uh, It was just really not accepted in the culture. It was not proper. So some people suggest that Jesus was just trying to fit inside the cultural norms of the day and that he asked her to go and get her husband so that there'd be another person there. The problem with this is that that doesn't make any sense. And that's kind of a big problem. If he was trying to follow the customs of the day, why would he have waited until this point in the conversation for her to go and get her husband? Why would he not have asked her to do this at the very beginning of the conversation, or better yet, not even talk to her in the first place? And this theory also suggests that Jesus is kind of unaware of her life circumstances, uh, which, as we just saw in our passage, is clearly not the case. Uh, So this can't be the real reason. I think there's a better option. I think that Jesus was trying to show this woman that he's different. He's not just some guy who's traveling through town. He had power. 
He had knowledge. Jesus already knew her life circumstances. Jesus already knew that she had had five husbands and that the man that she was with right now was not one of them. He already knew all of this, but don't miss this. This is huge. Even though the rest of the people in Samaria didn't want anything to do with her, Jesus still did. Jesus was still actively pursuing her soul regardless of her life circumstances. Jesus was offering her grace and forgiveness, and he was inviting her to receive this living water. Now, how cool is that? In this short conversation, we see that one of the divine attributes of Christ is that he is omniscient. In other words, he's all-knowing. And best of all, knowing what he knows about this woman and every single one of us in this room, he is still all-loving. How awesome is that? Let's keep reading. Verses uh, 19 through 26. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Yeah, no joke, right? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming. When you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And this is your fifth and final point. Jesus is the savior of sinners. Jesus is the savior of sinners. All right, let's break down this last part of our passage. Verses 19 through 21. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, you know that when he said this, she had to be thinking, hang on a second. If we're not going to travel to the southern kingdom uh, down there where where Jerusalem is, if we're not going to go there for worship, and if we're not going to worship up here, then where are we going to worship? Or maybe even more importantly, how are we going to worship? And then verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. So right here, uh, he's saying, you Samaritans worship what you do not know because you worship idols. We worship what we do know because we worship the God of the Bible. And he sent us salvation, and it's come through the Jews. And right there, he's referring to himself because he's a Jew. Verse 23 through 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. When it says that the hour is now here, It's because the Savior is now here. And when it says that true worship happens in spirit and in truth, what's that saying is that you have to be born of the Spirit to worship God and that you have to come to him through the truth. And that's Jesus Christ who in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Verses 25 through 26, let's keep going. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am he. Isn't that a cool way 
for this passage, this chunk of scripture that we just looked at right there to, to finish up. Jesus is boldly declaring, I am the Messiah. I am the guy that all of you are waiting on. I am the Savior of the world. What an awesome passage, amen. But guys, I've got good news. This story actually doesn't even end right here. For those of you who have read John chapter 4, you know that it actually keeps going. Uh, I do want to read this for you. We don't have any more fill in the blanks for it. But just listen to how this passage ends up because this is such an awesome way uh, for this story to end. This is verses 27 through 30, and then we're going to jump a little further down in John chapter 4. Verses 27 through 30 says this, Just then his disciples returned, and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Did you catch that? Leaving her water jar. The very reason why she was at that well was to get water, and she left that behind so that she could go back to her town and tell them about Jesus Christ. She went all the way back to the town that's full of people that wanted nothing to do with her and told them about Jesus Christ. So what ends up happening? So as a result of this woman's testimony, check this out. Verses 39 through 42. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Man, that's awesome. You know that that's cool right there. As a result of one woman putting her faith in Christ and and being excited about the gospel, a whole bunch of people from her town who wanted nothing to do with her ended up putting their faith in Christ and confessing him as Lord. Well, guys, let's, uh, let's bring this thing in for a landing. I want to be good with our time. Today we've seen that Jesus is intentional with his work. He's relational with his ministry. He's greater than everything. He's all-knowing and still all-loving. And he's the savior of sinners. So let me ask you, if you are already a follower of Christ, if you are a believer, are you intentional with your work? Are you actively and purposefully looking for opportunities to share the gospel with others? Number two, are you relational with your ministry? You don't have to work at a church or be a pastor to share the gospel with someone. Every one of us in here is on mission. Your mission field might be a paper factory, might be an office building, might be the grocery store. It doesn't matter. God has you where you are for a reason. Trust in the sovereignty of God and build relationships with the people that he has put in your life. Number three, are you letting people know that Jesus is greater than everything? Does this truth affect every area of your life? Does it affect the decisions that you make, the way you treat others, the things you say, the things you do, your attitude? Number four, are you letting people know that Jesus is all-knowing and still all-loving? It doesn't matter what you've done in life. Jesus already knows. And best of all, he still loves you. Just like this woman at the well, you may have some serious baggage in your life. And Jesus is still pursuing your soul. So believers, let me ask you, are you helping other people know this truth? 
And number five, are you letting people know that Jesus is the savior of sinners? Lifestyle evangelism is extremely important. Please, please, please do not mishear me. I do not want a bunch of angry emails or phone calls later. Lifestyle evangelism is extremely important. But you have to be living a life, though, uh, that is consistent with Scripture. But you must be willing to, to still share the gospel with your words. It's not enough just to live a right life. You still have to speak the truth. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. That can be you. You can be the person bringing good news. You can be the person with beautiful feet. Now, to the people in this room who are not followers of Christ, if you are in this room and you're not a believer, maybe you're, I don't, know what, I don't know what I think about this. I don't know if I believe this. I don't know if this is for me. I think I know what I believe, but it's not that. If you're one of these people, that's okay. Look, we are delighted that you are here. What we have seen today is this. There was a woman at a well who had a divine appointment with the Savior of the world. This woman was desperately trying to fill the void in her life just by going through relationships with other guys when all along what she really needed was a relationship with the Savior of the world. Jesus was after her. He wanted to break through and give her life and he's wanting that with you as well. This morning, we do not believe that you are here by accident. Today might be your divine appointment. So let me ask you, is today the day that you put your faith in Christ? It's today the day that you confess him as your Lord and Savior. If that's you, I want to invite you to come down front during our time of response. The youth band is on stage. They're ready to lead us in song. During this time, if you need to speak to someone about what it means to be a follower of Christ, we're going to have people available down front who are willing to talk to you, willing to share some more information with you. The altar is open if you want to come and pray. And we'll have pastors down front if you need to speak with someone. Let's all stand and sing.